everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing okay. We've just gotten back from our little mini vacation that we took, uh, just like three days off at a hotel downtown, one of which was actually a day off for me. I did work two out of those three days um but it was three days off for sarah so you doing good yeah nice and rested that's good to hear we also recorded uh the next bonus horror adjacent episode so keep your ears tuned for that uh, at the end of this month where we talk about young frankenstein yeah it should be a really good time yeah but that's in you know a few days from when this episode will go out. Mm -hmm. What are we watching tonight? Tonight, Sarah, we are watching the second of Charles Marquis Warren's eight-picture deal with Regal Films, the back half of the double bill with last week's The Unknown Terror. It's Back from the Dead from 1957. Awesome. I am, I'm really excited for this, honestly. I hope it lives up to your expectations uh well i mean it's dead then i mean it's back from the dead so i don't know if it will live sure (laughs) sure we had sort of a mixed reaction to the unknown terror ultimately deciding it was not horror yeah and we had like praise for some elements and not for others Big thing being that its script was bad. Yes, and this movie has a different... (laughs) I was about to say this movie has a different script. Like, yeah, Ben, of course. (laughs) Uh, No, but it's a different writer. It's a different premise. It's it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. So hopefully uh, that's going to make for a better product. Um, Back from the Dead was filmed in April of 1957, under a budget of $125,000. So pretty cheap. Pretty cheap. And it was based on the novel The Other One by Catherine Turney, who also wrote the script for this movie, adapting her own novel. Yes. You are very excited to talk about Catherine Turney. I am. And you will soon learn why. Yeah, let's hear all about it. Catherine Turney was born in December of 1906 in Chicago and then raised in Rome, New York. At 15, her family moved to Pasadena, California. After graduating high school, she studied uh, play and short story writing at Columbia University and was kind of bit by the theater bug. Um, She started working at the Pasadena Playhouse and worked her way up the, uh, what I'll call like behind the stage ladder, uh, in order to become director of the Playhouse Workshop. Now, this is in like the mid to late 20s. Um, during this time, in addition to being director of the Playhouse Workshop, she also originated the touring company, The Bandbox, which would become the Leo Carrillo Theater. Um, and so she would be writing for theater and radio and kind of getting these works under her belt. Okay. 
she would see um, some pretty big success with her 1936 play Bitter Harvest, performed in London. Have you heard of this play? No. Well, it's about Lord Byron and uh, his um, forbidden love with his half-sister Augusta Lay. Okay, yeah. So with the success of Bitter Harvest, like it did really well, Mm. um, MGM reached out to her for her help in adapting Frank Molnar's play The Girl from Trieste into the film The Bride Wore Red in 1937. Okay. Her draft was given to Joe Mankiewicz. Okay, sure. uh, To actually like turn it fully into the movie. Mm -hmm. And that was her first exposure to film. Okay. Her next play would be 1939's My Dear Children. Okay. Have you heard of that? You have a face. Okay. So it was on Broadway and was a big success because it starred John Barrymore. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, it would have gone on for a very long time, but he got tired of doing it. So he went back to doing film. Yeah. Well, by 19... Sorry, when did you say this was? 39. Yeah. John Barrymore was like kind of passed his prime a little bit. (laughs) A little old. She continued... Catherine Turney continued working at the Pasadena Playhouse until one fateful day when she earned herself a full contract writing at Warner Brothers in 1943. Okay, cool. Now, this contract puts Catherine Turney on a list of being one of the very first women to be hired on contract at Warner Brothers. Sure, yeah. Now, Turney chucked it up to, you know, men are away at war, so women will get more opportunities. But she really made a name for herself at the studio, writing scripts for big names like uh, Ida Lupino, Betty mm-hmm. Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, just to name a few. Sure. Some of her biggest films include the 1946 adaptation of of Human Bondage. Okay, yeah. The 1946 film starring Betty Davis titled A Stolen Life. Hmm. The 1946 Stanwyck picture My Reputation. Okay. The 1947 noir starring Ida Lupino, uh, titled The Man I Love. And a little picture in, um, earlier in 1945 that, uh, happened to star Joan Crawford titled Mildred Pierce. Oh, shit. That's really cool. Yes. I quite like Mildred Pierce. It's very good. It's based on a novel. Yes. Um, of the same name. Of the same name. The movie is different from the novel but i quite like the movie so turney is actually uncredited oh okay um she did some of the earlier versions that was adapting the novel into a screenplay okay and then from there it was kind of taken and run with sure um so even though mildred pierce was nominated for best screenplay uh, at the Academy Awards that year, um, Turney, her name is not there. It's under yeah. Reynold McDougal. Yeah, because she's not she's not credited. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that sort of sucks for her. Yeah. Um, it explains why, like, I haven't heard of her, maybe. But she's known in Hollywood, mm-hmm. given, like, the other big uh, pictures under her belt. Um, she would leave Warner Brothers in 1948 after the Betty Davis drama Winter Meeting. Okay. And she would 
Um, bounce around a few different studios, never as like a contract writer though. Uh, first to Paramount um, to work on the 1950 noir No Man of Her Own, starring Barbara Stanwyck. And then into the 50s and 60s, she begins writing more for television, um, particularly for The Wonderful World of Disney, General Hospital, and Maverick. Okay. Um, but she does have two credits in the 50s here. In 1952, 20th Century Fox released Japanese War Bride. Okay. Uh, which was apparently received like better than what it sounds like it might be. Sure. Um, and then 1957 with this film, Back from the Dead, also with 20th Century Fox. After the 60s, she would still write for television here and there, but she really started to focus on writing um, historical romance novels, as well as biographies okay. of all things. Um, her most recognized biography is uh, from 1972 about Elizabeth Medora Lay, who is uh, Lord Byron's daughter with his half-sister Augusta Lay. So, oh, Okay. That, so, you know, bit of a through line yeah. in the career there. Was she the one who invented computers or is that a different daughter of Lord Byron's? That's a different daughter. Okay. That's, um, that's Ada Lovelace. Catherine Turney would die in uh, September 1998 at age 92 in California. Good long run. Now, her novel, the other one, um, would also be published under the title possessed which gives you an idea of what the, what it's about mm-hmm. um and it was published in 1955 okay um so because into the 50s and 60s she's mainly focused on television i feel like it kind of makes sense that she would just kind of adapt her own novel into this uh dashed off script for this b movie yeah i mean her career seems to have followed like a very similar arc of a lot of hollywood professionals of the golden age who maybe weren't like regularly working on the big prestige pictures, but were kind of regularly working on all the other movies that sort of fill out the year. And as those kind of like slate filling movies stopped being made in the fifties because they were replaced by television, we've seen a lot of those professionals move their careers over to television with the odd like B movie here and there. So that's totally consistent. Absolutely. Now, the novel follows sisters Katie and Miranda. Uh, They are, uh, they grew up as orphans. Now that they are in their 20s, um, Katie is incredibly excited when Miranda falls in love and marries a man named Dick. Post-wedding, though, Miranda seems to grow really distant and just very, you know, unlike herself. Out of the blue, Miranda sends Katie a letter saying, hey, come join us at the cottage out in Carmel, which is a seaside city in California. Um, And Katie's like, yeah, absolutely. But she finds that Miranda is very tense. um, Again, still not really like herself. um, And it seems to get worse as Miranda realizes that she is pregnant. Then during that vacation, Miranda has a seizure and a miscarriage. When she wakes up, she seems to have a totally different personality and is insistent that Dick, A, had a first wife, and B, that first wife is named Felicia and died by drowning here exactly six years ago. Hmm. Now, um, Katie's like trying to take care of her sister, and Miranda's like, no, 
I am Felicia hmm. and uh, takes Katie to um, Felicia's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Bradley. And again, increasingly makes it clear that Miranda is possessed by Felicia. Things getting further tense and mysterious uh, when Katie learns that Mrs. Bradley is interested in the occult and seances um, and there's like local cult activity and Katie has to save her sister from this possession. Huh. Neat. Right? Sounds really dope. So I'm really excited for this. It sounds kind of like a mix of like like a 1950s hereditary with a little bit of like the omen. Okay. I don't know. I don't know, man, but I'm into it. Okay. Well, let's see how the movie does. Okay. Um, you know, we should temper our expectations given <laughs> last week's movie. Okay. Um, Fair enough. But, you know, maybe it'll be a pleasant surprise. Uh, in the lead role of the film playing um i think in the movie she's called mandy but like miranda slash felicia um is actress peggy castle who was born peggy blair in 1927 in appalachia virginia she changed her name when she signed with universal international in 1947 due to there already being a peggy blair on contract She was quickly dubbed Miss Cheesecake by the media and appeared in a number of films through the late 40s into the early 50s, sort of typecast in the role of the other woman. Okay. Uh, the, The bad girl who your husband's having an affair with kind of type. Earlier in 1957, she appeared as the female lead in Burt I. Gordon's Giant Locusts movie, Beginning of the End. Uh, where she co-starred with Peter Graves of Biography (laughs) fame. From 1959 to 1962, she portrayed the saloon owner Lily on the TV series Lawman, which is a Western, uh, where she got to show off her singing talents. Okay. Unfortunately, Castle had a pretty difficult private life. She had four marriages, Uh, the longest lasting of which was from 1955 to 1969, uh, which was her third, um, which produced a daughter. All of her other marriages were like five years or less. Her fourth husband died in April of 1973 after they'd been married for two, three years. And she followed suit in August at age 45. She had been an alcoholic throughout her adult life, and her third husband found her dead on her couch in her Hollywood apartment, uh, the cause of death being cirrhosis. Damn. Yeah. Our male lead here, playing Dick, is Arthur France, who we last saw as the helpful astronomer in Invaders from Mars. Ah, yes. Also featured in the role of Katie, the sister, is actress Marsha Hunt, who at age 103 is the oldest living actor to have worked in the golden age of Hollywood. Oh, wow. So is she still around then? Yes, so she's still alive. Wow. Because um, Vivian Lee passed away lately. Hunt was born in Chicago in 1917. While her parents wanted her to go to college, she wanted to be an actress. So she began a modeling career, becoming one of the highest paid models of 1935. 
At age 17, she signed a seven-year contract with Paramount, who tried her out in ingenue parts for like three years before terminating her contract. She struggled for a few years, um, you know, playing in like PRC and monogram kind of movies, Republic Pictures stuff. Um, but a role in MGM's Glamour Girls in 1939 helped her open up new doors, and she began appearing regularly in A Pictures from MGM. She and her husband, screenwriter Robert Purnell Jr., joined the Committee for the First Amendment in 1947 to speak out against HUAC and led a protest in Washington called Hollywood Fights Back. After this, she was branded a potential communist, and blacklisted Mm -hmm. to find work in this period she mostly appeared in plays appearing in only a handful of movies like this one instead she devoted her time to humanitarian work Uh, she joined the un association to fight world hunger founded one of the first homeless shelters in the san fernando valley served on the board for the san fernando valley mental health center Um, And to this day, she remains highly concerned about pollution, global poverty, peace in the third world, and dwindling resources. So yeah, kind of a like cool old lady. Yeah, good for her. Two notable minor actors in the cast are James Bell and Gene Bates. Bell had been acting in Hollywood since 1932, and we've seen him before in I Walked with a Zombie, The Leopard Man, and The Spiral Staircase. In The Leopard Man, he was Dr. Galbraith, who turns out to be the serial killer in the end. Oh. Uh, Here he plays Mr. Bradley. Jean Bates began appearing in films in 1942, and we've seen her before in small roles in Return of the Vampire and Soul of a Monster. But she is perhaps best remembered today by David Lynch fans for her late career appearances in Eraserhead and Mulholland Drive. And she passed away in 2007. Okay. So Back from the Dead was released on August 12th, 1957 as one of the two super monstrous superhuman super shockers. The film got very little contemporary critical attention um, and generated slightly less than average box office gross. Mm-hmm. Most critics dubbed it a Bridie Murphy cash-in with the, like, reincarnation kind of themes. Um, And most praise for this movie is saved for Marsha Hunt's performance as the sister. Okay. Like The Unknown Terror, it's never had, like, an official home video release. Um, And like The Unknown Terror, someone has uploaded, like, a 16-millimeter copy to YouTube so you can find it on our YouTube playlist. Awesome. So folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find that playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Back from the Dead from 1957, directed by Charles Warren. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Back from the Dead from 1957, directed by Charles Marquis Warren. 
Sarah, what did you think of this movie? You were really looking forward to this. I was, and it did not disappoint, as the plot of the film follows pretty much what I understand that the novel does. So yeah, I quite enjoyed this. What about you? I thought this was actually quite good. Yes. It's a shame that like no one's produced a decent home video release because most of the flaws I had in my experience of the movie were clearly from like the battered state of the print, Mm -hmm. um, which has poor sound, cropped picture and very like jumpy editing. Yeah, it was a little hard to see what was going on. Um, luckily someone would turn on a lamp about halfway through the scene. So it'd be like, oh, okay, thanks. Now, now I know what's going on. Um, I agree with the jumpy editing. Um, that might just be a case of the lower budget. It also might be like, if this is a really old print, um, it might be something where you had to cut out frames that were damaged. Mm. Um, and given that this is a print from somewhere and not like a, you know, pristine negative stuff got cut out by like exhibitors at theaters being like, ah, this scene's too long, you know? (laughs) And like, oh, and this, you can't show a scene like that in this state sure, or whatever. Like, so there's a bunch of reasons why the editing could be, could be jumpy and I'm not going to blame them on the movie. Okay. Well, um, let me give the rundown. Uh, so like I said, it follows pretty much the same as the book. Um, when we open, uh, it opens the human sacrifice (laughs) and some female voiceover, uh, saying like, you know, there's such things in America as satanic cults who believe in the devil. Mm -hmm. And the voiceover switches from like it, what sounds like someone who's like, I, I never believed that this would happen in my backyard to someone who's like in the midst of it and is like, but you'll never be rid of me, which is interesting. Um, the voiceover of you'll never be rid of me. Um, we see echo throughout the cliffs of California until we see Mandy, um, a woman who is on vacation, uh, with her husband, Dick and her sister, Kate. Um, now Mandy is haunted by these voices. She's said that, you know, since we came to vacation here, I'm hearing these things and the doctor thinks it's just because I'm pregnant and I'm a woman. (laughs) Um, Dick doesn't believe me. Um, But now I'm telling you, Kate, my sister. The other kind of strange thing going on here, now Dick owns a condo here, like a house here, but he hasn't been back for about six years and he doesn't really know why he just wanted to come back here. He says he was drawn back here without really knowing why, Um, as well as playing certain music um, that Mandy actually kind of hates. And I don't blame her. Like It's weird music. Mandy's on the couch in the living room. You know, Kate's in an easy chair. Dick puts on this record like it's like going to be something that you can just listen to in the background while you're like hanging out with friends. And instead it's, well, I mean, it's the opening credits music, but it's like an orchestra being all like, bum, 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 while like a theremin is going like, ooh. <laughs> it's like you want some like easy lounge listening music as you hang out with your friends the first time seeing them since the pandemic. Right. And you put on Rites of Spring. Yeah, exactly. That's like... exactly what it's like. <laughs> Wild. 
And Mandy's like, Dick, please, I really don't want this music. And he's like, you'll listen to it. He's Gosh. a little bit of a dick. Gosh darn it. And he really should not have played it because the music kind of causes Mandy to have a seizure. She has like an orgasmic reaction and then has an epileptic attack. Now they call the doctor. Um, and in addition to this seizure, uh, she unfortunately miscarried the baby, uh, which I was really like unsure how the movie was going to handle that part of the novel. But they, you know, they handle it well. I was surprised it was in here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, miscarriage is never specifically said, just she lost the baby. Yes. Now, given that that can be pretty traumatic, the doctor's like, she might be a little out of it for the next few days, but just give her time mm -hmm. and she'll kind of be back to her regular self. Mm -hmm. So Dick and Kate go in to see Mandy and she's like, I'm Felicia and I'm back <laughs> the movie does kind of a, a neat thing where mandy's laying on the bed now mandy has blonde hair and in close-ups she s appears to have dark hair which fades into blonde as the possession seems to take place hmm. um kind of a, a neat editing trick going on here um, anyways, so Mandy's like, I don't know who you are, Kate, and she calls Dick Dickin, which is, uh, <laughs> what she needs, um, which is what Felicia would call Dick. Um, I guess his full name is Dickin. I heard it as Dickens, which, which sounds a little bit more like a name <laughs> than Dickin, but, <laughs> you know, the audio wasn't great on the print. Yeah, yeah. Now, this goes on for about a day, and... Kate and Dick are like, this can't, like, yes, the doctor said, you know, she might be a little different, but like, this is a little more than different. So they go to the doctor and the doctor's like, I think she needs psychiatric help. But right now, you know, she's very fragile. So just placate her while she gets over the miscarriage. And then when she's a little bit more stable, take her to go see a psychiatrist. In the midst of like, okay, well, let's go for a drive down to the post office and stuff um, just to try to create some sense of normalcy for Felicia, I guess I'll say. They run into an old friend of Dick's named John Mitchell. And Dick is not subtle about trying to play matchmaker here and introduces John to Kate and invites John over for drinks later. After that, and it's clear that like Mandy... Ha, like recognizes John, but there's no reason why Mandy would, but all the reason that Felicia would recognize him. Um, anyways, after the post office, uh, Felicia says, well, I want to go see the Bradleys. And Dick is like, okay. And he explains to Kate that there's no reason why Mandy would know who the Bradleys are, would want to go see them or anything because they are Felicia's parents. Mm -hmm. So they go in and after some quizzing of questions that only Felicia would know, Mrs. Bradley is like, it is Felicia. And she's like, so happy that she's come back. Mr. Bradley is like, this should not be mm. at all. This is against God himself. Like, no, it becomes clear during this scene as well that um, there's something more going on with Mrs. Bradley and Felicia is in on it. 
they have a little side conversation that's like everything will go back to normal once we get rid of the sister. Yeah. And like when Mrs. Bradley realizes that, you know, Felicia's spirit is possessing Mandy, she says like, it worked kind of thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now out on the veranda, um, Kate and Dick have a conversation that's basically like Dick kind of throwing up his hands and being like, we have to face the facts that Felicia has possessed Mandy. And Kate's like, what the <laughs> fuck? That's my sister. <laughs> they end up leaving. And, um, it's clear that like, yeah, more is going on. Um, mysterious stuff going down in this small town. Now, uh, you know, they have the date with John over and uh, a family friend named Molly and Felicia comes down the stairs in something that's quite revealing and quite not what Mandy would normally do. So even Molly is like, what is going on? And we get an interesting bit um, with a dog named Copper i have not mentioned up till now so mandy has had a dog named copper uh he he looks like just like a mutt kind of dog like whatever but he seems very well behaved when mandy goes through the seizure uh the dog starts like growling at her to kind of show like oh something weird's going on and since she has become felicia she does not want copper around at all now, Molly goes to say hi to Copper. He comes into the house and then immediately is like barking at Felicia. So again, something supernatural is going on. Always trust animals. Right. But this party allows John and Kate to get a little closer and he asks for her to uh, come out for a drive the next day. That night, Kate has taken a sleeping pill as suggested by John in a really strange roundabout way, but... I think the movie's trying to, at this point, like, make you unsure of who to trust. Yes. Yeah. Because he's like, you, you're not getting much sleep. You should take a sleeping pill. Right, yeah. And that night, uh, Felicia basically tries to kill Kate by um, turning on the gas heater in her room and closing the windows. But Kate is awoken by the sound of Mandy's voice saying, wake up, wake up. Um, and so she saves herself and Kate and Dick both know that Felicia just tried to do this, but like they can't prove it. Another thing that happens that night that is never brought up and again yeah. is to keep Copper quiet from barking at night so he doesn't wake up Kate. Felicia goes out and picks up a spade and approaches Copper menacingly. Uh, so the dog dies. Yes, the dog has been killed. Yes. While out on this date with John, Kate meets uh, a woman named Nancy. Now, John is very, like, standoffish to Nancy um, in almost a rude manner. But as Kate is talking to Nancy, it becomes clear that, like, Nancy's involved in a cult. <laughs> and so is most of the community here. You know, at first when Nancy comes up and it's like John and Kate are relaxing, you know, on his in his driveway patio or whatever, and she comes up and she's like, oh, hey, John, I didn't know you were back in town. At first, I thought the standoffish reaction he was giving her was because, like, maybe she's like an old girlfriend and he's a bit of a womanizer and he didn't want her around while he was, like, putting the moves on 
mm-hmm. Kate. But then, yeah, it, it no, no, Nancy's in a cult. Yeah. Nancy mentions the name of someone named um, or who goes by Maitre Vernon. And that's someone that Felicia had mentioned offhand. So Kate's like, oh, well, tell me more about this Maitre Vernon. And basically comes up with this cover story that she's a widow uh, who's been, who's like well off. And since the death of my husband, I've felt like I've needed more in my life. Really just as a ruse to try to get Nancy to, to introduce Kate to Maitre Renault. And it works. So we go to meet him. And so Maitre Renault, Maitre meaning master in French. And the movie does stop to explain. Yes. And Renault being a French last name, you're expecting a Frenchman. No, it's like a German guy. Yeah, it's... It's, it's odd. It's like... Oh no, the foreigners. <laughs> He has like a very kind of um, menacing uh, German feel about him, you know? Yeah. Now he knows exactly who Kate is and um, she's like, okay, well, then you know that Felicia is possessing my sister Mandy um, and it's Mrs. Bradley who's doing all this. And Renault is like, Mrs. Bradley, she did things without my permission or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And so he's clearly mad about that. Um, and he's like, well, I'll help you get your sister back, but you have to do everything exactly as I say. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, I'll be back tomorrow night. Um, after she leaves, Renault is like, I knew Felicia would come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's clear that he's like trying to play Kate. Exactly. Not play Cater, but just play her. Her name is Kate. Yes. Yes. Um, but then Kate gets a call from Mr. Bradley asking her to come over because Mrs. Bradley is out of the house. And in that meeting, he's like, look, Mrs. Bradley is into the occult. She got into it because of Felicia. Felicia can't be trusted and Renell can't be trusted either. If he's saying he's going to help you, it's to serve his own ends. Don't trust him. I will help you. I'm on your side because I believe in God. Yes. And Kate's like, okay, I believe you. Um, but she has to head out pretty quick because Mrs. Bradley has arrived. Um, now, Kate doesn't go out through like the back door. She goes out through the front door and meets Mrs. Bradley in the foyer. Uh, and Mrs. Bradley is like, oh, I know why you're here. You can't stop us. And Kate's like, I'm not afraid of you. Mrs. Bradley retorts, well, you don't know what we can do. We can harm you and they won't even know it was us. She would tell her and your little dog, too, if Felicia hadn't already taken care of that. Yes. But Kate's like, I'm not afraid. And then, like, leaves and drives back home. Now, it's clear, if you put the dots together, that Mrs. Bradley is doing some witchcraft to cause physical pain to Kate as she is driving home. Um, She is in pain as she parks very erratically. And um, gets into the house and is like, yeah, in serious pain. John sees that the car has been parked pretty strangely as he's walking by and he enters the house and he helps Kate. And just him being there seems to kind of help alleviate what's going on. And she's like, no, I can't really tell you what's going on because it's like occult stuff. And he's like, no, you can tell me. And Kate's like, no, you'll just say that like everyone's conspiring against us and Felicia's actually alive. Uh, something like that. And John's like, 
no, I know Felicia's dead. It's my fault. And you're like, what? <laughs> Turns out Felicia was a bit of a flirt and um, had enough charm to kind of go after every boy in town, even as she was married to Dick. Um, and this is when John had met her. Now Felicia goes after John uh, and he's like, no, you're married to my best friend. What the fuck? Um, they're at a party and um, Felicia and Dick have a fight and they each kind of go their own separate ways. As John is driving home, he hears that Felicia's in the back seat, kind of laughing and wanting to like play a trick on him a bit. She hops into the front seat and he, according to him, is like telling her like all the worst things in the book to try to be like, get out of my car, stop trying to do this, leave me alone. Um, so he pulls over on the side of the road near a cliff over the sea, you know, kicks her out and she's like, well, fine, I guess I'll just go kill myself. And he's like, fine, do it. Leave me alone. And then he realizes that she's like actually getting pretty close to the edge. And he's like, no, wait, don't. And then she chips and falls off the cliff and dies. And John hasn't told anyone because it's not like anyone knew Felicia was with him. Uh, so he just kind of like faded away. Yes. But he says, you know, you're the only one who knows this. And I'm telling you this so that you know that Felicia is dead. At this point, they get... Oh, at this point, Dick has arrived and Felicia is back as well. Um, and they get a frantic call from the maid at the Bradleys. They head over there and it turns out that the Bradleys are dead. We hear from the maid, Agnes, that she overheard Mr. Bradley praying and Mrs. Bradley getting angry about it. And then when she entered Mr. Bradley's room, he was lying on the bed, kind of sprawled out and was most likely dead. Um, so Dick runs up to check. And at that moment, Felicia runs up to check on Mrs. Bradley, who is laying on the floor, also dead. So clearly there was some kind of like battle, prayer battle going on between yeah. these two. Yeah, they had like a, like a, a cleric battle. <laughs> <laughs> now, Felicia starts to panic because she knows that if Mrs. Bradley isn't around to like help her keep possession of this body, she's going to lose this body right quick. So she starts to make her way to Renault, but she gets held back by John, Dick, and Kate, and they basically take her home and lock her in the bedroom um, to keep her from doing this. Kate then falls for the oldest trick in the book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Felicia pretends to be Mandy, and draws Kate in and then hits her over the head with like a candlestick. Yes. But you have to have that moment in every single possession story where the possessed person is like, no, it's, it's me really like, let me out. Like it's oh please. Like I'm not possessed. See, I'm fine. It's all good. And then the person's stupid. Yes. Yeah. So after deceiving Kate, Felicia gets out and heads to Renault. And it's made clear that they are old lovers, mm -hmm. uh, much to Nancy's dismay. She's quite upset about basically being tossed aside for Felicia. Um, so Nancy decides, okay, fuck this. I'm <laughs> going to go help the good guys. Um, now we hear from Renault 
that in order to help Felicia keep Mandy's body, they have to sacrifice uh, this family friend named Molly, who I mentioned before. Like I said, Nancy, who is now jilted, goes to Kate, John, and Dick and brings them to the house where uh, Felicia and Renault are about to sacrifice Molly to the point where like they have the knife raised above her body. They're also like... They have like a sacrifice room in this house, I guess, because it's like a pitch black room with like a window over the altar where they've got like the body spread out. And they're in like black hooded cloaks with like gnarly looking daggers as if they're like from a Frank Frazetta painting for a Conan (laughs) novel. Like this is this is a full on cult. They are not half assing about the cult stuff here, you know? Yeah, now, the boys fight with Renault to uh, get the knife from him, and Nancy pulls a gun and says, get away from Renault. He's coming with me. They leave the room. Felicia pulls out her knife, and she's like, you'll never stop me, and they have to restrain her. Suddenly, they hear a shot ring out from the other room, and John runs out. Nancy shot Renault. Yeah, and she looks like she's from the cover of like a pulp noir novel as she stands over him with the gun in her hand yeah and she says something like um i'll say that it was all him just to kind of keep felicia slash mandy in the clear right now with renault dead uh felicia has a seizure and seems to revert a little bit back to mandy next thing we know we cut to mandy recuperating in bed um kind of still unconscious And everyone's, like, really concerned. Kate, who definitely has a concussion and definitely should go to the hospital, is refusing to until she knows her sister's okay. And then Mandy slowly awakes and says, like, I dreamt I was, like, alone and cold and, like, someplace else. And I don't remember anything. Uh, I'm, what's going on? And Kate leaves the room kind of, like, broken up about all this and mentions to John, um... Well, if she doesn't remember anything, let's keep it that way. Right. And that's the end. I will just say, because it was a moment I really liked, um, at the end of the movie, when Mandy wakes up and she's like, oh, the last thing I remember, I fell asleep on the couch. Um, She kind of looks around, clocks that she's in a hospital and goes, I lost the baby, didn't I? Mm -hmm. And Dick's like, yeah. And she's like, well it's going to be okay, Dick, like as long as we're together. And I really liked that. Yeah. It was really nice. And I liked that Dick didn't try to like soft pedal that she lost the baby. Like we can argue whether it's a good idea or not to keep Mandy in the dark about being possessed by his dead ex-wife that she didn't know existed. But like, I can see where people like where Kate's coming from on that, but I'm, I'm glad that they didn't try to like, I don't know, soft pedal the miscarriage. Mm -hmm. So I really liked that moment. Uh, I also really liked um, when Kate says, like, she must never know what happened to her. Uh, She must never know the truth. Yeah. um, And John says, uh, will anyone? Yes. (laughs) Know the truth about Felicia? Yeah. Like, will anyone know the truth of what really happened kind of thing? Yeah, it's a good little moment. So I think that this is like, a pretty awesome female-led film. Yeah, Kate's a really great character yeah. for a movie of this vintage. Yeah, I really liked her. I like that um, she has that moment facing off with Mrs. Bradley. Yeah. That was neat. 
there's a good bit in the scene between her and Mr. Bradley where he says, like, the only thing they're afraid of are people who are stronger than them. Mm -hmm. And Kate really, like, uses that for the rest of the movie. Kate's a really good, strong character. You know, it is interesting. Like, ultimately, Renault's the bad guy. But, like, for a good portion of the film, like, Mrs. Bradley's the -hmm. bad guy, which is really cool. Felicia's one of the bad guys. Um, So it's a very, like, woman-dominated movie. And a lot of that makes sense in terms of being a movie about, like, a satanic cult. Mm -hmm. Because, like, a lot of those kind of, like, occult societies in, like, the 20th and even going into, like, the 19th centuries were a lot of, like, charming men preying on, like, rich, lonely women for both money and sex. Sure. And so it feels very, like, real that, like, it's a bunch of housewives in a community. Um, The thing I also really liked about Kate was that there are a lot of, like, 1950s movie moments where John and Dick will be like, quick, we must spring into action to do the thing. Kate, you stay here. And Kate's like, fuck no, and just goes with them. (laughs) I quite liked that. Yeah, she finds a way to stay involved, um, even as there are times where this film gets held back by the conventions of, well, the guys have to jump into action. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like this movie is fighting against that as much as possible, like mm-hmm. with Nancy pulling out the gun and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, whether that's because Turney, Catherine Turney is trying to balance between what happens in the novel and what you can do on screen or just even just what happens in the novel, like the standard conventions of the time. Like, I don't know. She's, you can feel a, a little bit of a tension there and I appreciate it because normally there's no tension and it's just, the boys get to do things. Yeah. And like Kate's the one who gets to have the conversations and the confrontations. Like Dick doesn't have a scene where he talks to Renault and is like, how dare you do this to my family or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all Kate who gets to do these things. And so even though it's like the boys who have some rough housing at the end, like Kate's the one who's actually like been the heroine. And it was really interesting seeing a horror movie directed like so explicitly at women, mm-hmm. like like with, with a female audience in mind, I think. Like this doesn't feel aimed at teens or boys, you know, so much. Yeah. And I think that makes it feel very modern. Like the thing that struck me the most about this movie, like before we watched it, you were like, yeah, it sounds like a hereditary meets the omen kind of thing. And, you know there's some Rosemary's baby here and stuff, but like really the whole like community of satanic cultists and their like secret conspiracies, which cross generations and like the themes of like loss and family and sex and power all reads like very modern. It it feels like something from the seventies or later, like Mm -hmm. all of these kind of satanic cult things are way more like, 1970s thing than a 1950s thing so it was really cool and interesting to see them portrayed here yeah i would agree i will say that uh renault was a letdown in what way well i think part of it it just felt like because he has a german accent it was just like oh uh, yes a foreigner right is like behind it all right um it also kind of felt like 
I don't know. Maybe maybe it was because of the budget, but like once he's defeated, I guess the cult's over now. Like, right. Yeah. It was a little unclear what the deal with the cult was and like how their magic powers work and what exactly they're doing. I think part of that is code stuff. Like I don't think in 1957 you would really be allowed to be like they worship Satan and the way they do that is through these methods. Yeah. Um but I kind of like that the cult is like vague and ambiguous because it keeps them mysterious and it keeps them like weird and like something you don't quite understand, which makes them more threatening. Um, John says that like when, when he talks about Renota, Katie says something about like, Oh yeah, he's some guy who came out here and tried to start his own religion. Mm -hmm. And so what's unclear is like, is there a wider cult beyond Renault? Like maybe killing him does, get rid of the cult because maybe it's just him true being a predator again one of the reasons why you got a lot of movies about you know cults preying on californians (laughs) in the (laughs) 70s and later was um the manson family stuff i was thinking jonestown well that was even a little later yeah um but like this is pre both of those things yes Um, You know, the closest thing to something even remotely similar to this by the late 50s would maybe be like Dianetics, um, which was L. Ron Hubbard's thing. I don't Mm. know if it was quite Scientology yet by 57. But yeah, it just feels like very modern. Um, Renault, what I liked about him is that the actor who... I don't know anything about like he's just somebody but the actor had like enough screen presence and charisma that you could buy that people would follow him but you know he gets shot because he's just some guy yeah just a dude you know yeah he's like Nancy what are you gonna do I'm gonna go with Felicia what you gonna do and she kills him yeah, and he's like i have a gun like <laughs> take that voldemort what you gonna do <laughs> yeah exactly very very much so <laughs> the other way that i was kind of let down with this movie is again i feel like it's not really a fault of it but more of the code but like you don't really get to see much no but what they put in here is still like this movie has some pretty surprising moments of darkness yeah like the miscarriage Like, as you say, they never say the word, but like it's here in the movie. Like they don't you don't have to read between the lines. Yeah. You don't get to see the killing of the dog, but it's clear that a dog has been killed. Yeah. um, Which was surprising. The death of the Bradleys happens. And like we don't see dead Mr. Bradley, but we do see Mrs. Bradley like breathe her last. And even like the shooting of Renault like feels like kind of like, whoa, Okay, that happened. Yeah, I mean, but like the shooting and even the Bradleys all happens off screen. Yes. So it it just felt like part. Okay, so it's like a two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, uh, woo, mysterious. Like we don't have control over anything to the point where we don't even know what is fully going on. We don't get to see what's fully going on. And on the other hand, I want to see it. Right. Let me see it. Right. It's it's a movie. Let me see it. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's worth noting that these things are even just in here. Yeah. 
Like, when was the last time we saw, like, an elderly married couple kill each other in, like, a... Prayer battle. Yeah. That's fucking wild. Like, (laughs) this is a movie from 1957. Like, of course they don't want to show you the old man and his wife kill each other with god magic. Like, (laughs) that's wild. Um, So I think these things are handled pretty well for a movie of this vintage. But coming back to the, like, modern feel of it all, definitely, if we were in the 70s, like we'd show we'd see a bit more of of what's going on right yeah for sure the performances here aren't like oscar worthy Mm -hmm. but i feel like they're good enough to support the material i think so yeah like marcia hunt's pretty good as kate peggy castle does like a good job of expressing felicia's ice cold kind of deal yeah. It's really clear that something's wrong, like immediately. Um, she does a good job there. The actress who plays Mrs. Bradley is like really going for it. I have to assume this is an actress who mostly played like school marms and grandmas <laughs> and shit. So her just being able to be like, yes, and then we'll kill you, bitch. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, really must have been fun for her. Um, yeah, like nobody comes off like, wooden or or cardboard dick a little bit yeah but lucky for him the script doesn't call for much from him true yeah the filmmaking style which does have like some stylish moments here and there does mark it as like the product of the 50s as does the music Mm -hmm. um but you could really take this script and like do a version of it as a movie today and like not have to change much. I don't think. No, you'd probably, um, well maybe with like cell phones and all that jazz, but like, I I feel like this could work with something. Yeah. Like, you know, a 24 could spice this up. It would, it would be the, the big difference between I think horror now and then other than like, explicit gore more titties like (laughs) i think the biggest difference is modern horror movies love to just have like silence yeah really oppressive long stretches of silence and these old horror movies are like bum 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 like okay i get it there is a lot of dialogue in this movie yeah yeah, I think that's something that marks it as a low-budget movie, right? That feeling of, like, this is mostly a bunch of scenes of people standing around talking. Yeah, it did give a feeling of, like, there just being a lot going on. Mm. Um, I, I wish that there would be a way to kind of simplify this a bit, but I don't know if that would even be possible um, because you need to have so many characters for the, for the cult to feel menacing and part of this community. Yeah. So almost the only way to do it would really just to be to lengthen the runtime so yes. you could have those moments to breathe. Yes, I agree with you entirely. If the movie has a real weakness for me, like if if I could change one thing about this movie, um it's that the short running time while it means that we get into the story pretty quick, um it does mean that we don't get to see much of Mandy before or after the possession Mm -hmm. in order to like contrast her with Felicia. Like, I don't necessarily think, you know, if you were to remake this movie today, I don't think a good idea would be to do like 
The you first know. third is before Felicia. Middle third is yeah. all Felicia. Last third is Denouement. Yeah, or, or or just, you know, to spend too much time before we get to the meat of the thing, which, like, because that's a definite sin of a lot of modern movies, right? But you do kind of need to see, you know the Punisher happy before his family gets killed. Like you need to have a bit of that contrast. Felicia's so cold that it's very obvious that something's wrong right away. But if we kind of had more of a sense of Mandy beforehand, I think it would heighten that and give us more like sympathy for Mandy and like really help us understand like Kate and Dick as they struggle to get her back and stuff. Like we get it. It's not like you watch the movie and you're like, why would you bother? Like, you get it. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we first meet Mandy, she's already hearing voices. Yeah. So I'm really happy that I enjoyed this movie. Um, and I think part of why I enjoyed this is it felt, I don't know why, I'm still trying to parse out why, but it felt like a Fear Street novel, you know? I've it, never read a Fear Street oh novel. Oh my God, Ben. Um well, it felt like an R.L. Stein or Christopher Pike novel, you hmm. know, like maybe not so much young adult, but just like the feeling that Kate is in. Um, and maybe that's just my own touchstone with those novels versus like what Turney was actually going for with the other one. It did make me start to wonder, like, is this horror or is this thriller? But I think it's horror. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is definitely horror. Like we're in like devil cult satanic possession yeah. territory like yeah this is horror yeah, absolutely, absolutely absolutely so where do we want to look at ranking this well i first started looking at some movies that we've had cults in in the past yeah the one that comes most to mind is the seventh victim yeah absolutely um which is currently ranked at number 38 uh, with like things like the vampire and the uninvited on either side of it. And I like back from the dead, but this just feels a bit too high to me. Hmm. Um, so I started looking down and as I looked down, I stopped at the devil commands at number 59. Okay. Which one is that again? Is that the one where Karloff opens a portal to hell in his living room? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Um, but, you know, it has, like, that supernatural element and stuff. And this is definitely better, I think, than that picture. Which, like I said, is at 59. So that's that's quite a large range. That's, like, a range of 20 spots, 38 to 59. But that's kind of where I was a little lost within. Uh, but, yeah, where were you thinking? So my range is entirely within yours. Oh, dope. Um, I also started by looking at The Seventh Victim, just because that's our other satanic cult movie. And I kind of liked this better. The plot makes more sense. I think The Seventh Victim has some cooler filmmaking stuff going on and, like, builds up a really cool atmosphere. And it, you know, helps that Val Luton and his team was better at, like, kind of stretching their budgets but I feel like the cult in this movie feels more menacing. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that the cult in seventh victim is just being like, Hey, drink this poison. Drink y- it. Yeah. And they don't have 
confirmed supernatural powers. Like, yeah, they're actually true. just like a bunch of like bored, like rich people in New York. They're like a book club that decided it would be cool <laughs> to get into Satan. And um, a lot of it is just that they're preying on someone with like mental health issues. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's a very effective movie, The Seventh Victim. But I, I liked the cult in this. I liked the satanic element. I really liked Mrs. Bradley as a villain. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on here. And like I've been saying, a lot of stuff that feels very modern, very forward looking stuff that I wouldn't expect to see in a 1950s movie. Um, so I wanted to leave room that maybe this was better than the seventh victim, but right above the seventh victim is like vampire. And I said that, you know, seventh victims probably better doing some better filmmaking stuff than back from the dead. And, you know, Back from the Dead is interesting enough that I could bump it above. But Vampire's kind of where it's like, yeah, no, those guys are, are definitely doing better filmmaking stuff than you and, like, doing more cool, neat things. So, no, I'm not putting this above Vampire. Looking below the seventh victim, you know, there's the Uninvited, there's the White Reindeer, there's House of Wax, like, really strong stuff. And it, the question basically is, you know, because the Uninvited and White Reindeer do have better filmmaking, do have better like atmosphere building. Um, Even if I really like the story in Back from the Dead quite a lot and a lot of the like story elements that it has. So it becomes this like push pull of like, how much do you award to craft versus content? I guess you could say. Um, But then I stopped at 43. I was a teenage werewolf and I like Back from the Dead better. I was a teenage werewolf is iconic for its 50s pop culture place. But like the story don't make no fucking sense. Like why the fuck <laughs> is Michael Landon turning into a werewolf? Why does that scientist want to turn him into a werewolf? How does it have to do with helping humanity survive nuclear war? Why does he transform? What's the trigger? What's his psychology? Like none of that movie makes any fucking sense. And it's very like basic bitch in terms of what it's doing. <laughs> so I think Back from the Dead is better then I was a teenage werewolf, which made my range 38 to 43. Well, I'm going to suggest something to you. Okie dokie. What about above I was a teen werewolf and below the queen of spades at number 42? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Cool. My reasoning for this is like, I agree it's better than teen werewolf, but the stuff going on in queen of spades, house of wax, white reindeer, I think it's a step above what Back from the Dead is able to achieve with its budget. Yeah, those are just better movies. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, so entering the list at the new number 43 is Back from the Dead from 1957, directed by Charles Marquis Warren. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Subscribe to us through our RSS feed. Help the show out by leaving a rating or review. Tell a friend about us. Or if you feel comfortable and have the means, you can support us financially by heading on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Money that we get from patrons helps us, you know, take the time to do 
the research that we do, um, record these episodes, pay our hosting fees, and it also incentivizes us for all of the cool rewards that patrons get. Uh, at the $1 a month level, you get thanked on the show. $5 a month gets you access to regular bonus audio. $10 a month, regular bonus writings, uh, including Sarah's Gothic Retrospective series, which is currently ongoing. And of course, you get everything that the lower tiers get when you, when you, when you do a higher tier, obviously. Um, thanks to our patrons, we are now doing our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episodes. As we mentioned at the top of the show, our newest one coming up is Young Frankenstein, which I know a lot of people have wanted to hear us talk about that movie for a long time. So if you want to be a part of all that and get access to all that cool bonus stuff and, you know, show us just how much uh, you support us, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, our next movie is one that I know nearly nothing about other than that it's got a monster from Paul Blaisdell in it. It's called From Hell It Came. I take it it is uh, it's the monster? I would assume so, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.